On this Remembrance Day, a former cabinet minister and member of the National Security Committee reveals attempted extortion over sexting. Is it time to rethink the vetting process for those overseeing sensitive information? Then the Liberals campaigned on a promise to increase veterans' benefits and restore their lifetime pension. We'll talk to a couple of veterans who say the government has failed on their campaign promises. And on this Remembrance Day, a look at the key battles from the First World War that most Canadians have never heard of and their role in ending the Great War. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block Podcast. A political bombshell hit Ottawa last week when former cabinet minister and former Conservative MP Tony Clement disclosed an extortion attempt over his inappropriate online behaviour and acts of infidelity. Until this week, Clement sat on the powerful and secretive parliamentary committee that oversees national security and intelligence for the country with access to classified information. Stories of questionable behaviour by Clement have mounted all week, and so have questions about how he made it through the security check. In a moment, we'll ask a former CSIS agent about that, but first, here is Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale. One of the requirements in the legislation, uh, in what was Bill C-22, that created the Nas National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, uh, is uh, a, 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 a serious security clearance for all people who are being considered uh, for uh, for that uh, for that role, uh, obviously, when circumstances arise, uh, those who are responsible for those security reviews will be re-examining procedures to make sure that everything that needs to be done uh, is done. Former CSIS analyst Phil Gursky joins us now. Uh, Phil, we just heard from the Public Safety Minister, Ralph Goodale, on security clearances for parliamentarians that sit on that National Security Committee. What kind of vetting process would they have for an MP or a senator? That's a really good question. I can only speak to what a background clearance vetting process looks like for someone like myself. I used to work for CSIS and CSE. And in our, in the, in our cases, because we're dealing... Uh, with raw intelligence and we're dealing with ways to collect and assess intelligence, it's a fairly rigorous process where they go back into a number of years in your past to, uh, to look at your activities, uh, look at your relationships, look at the kinds of things you do online and offline to see if there are any vulnerabilities that could be extorted or taken advantage of by a malicious actor. And that's, in other words, so that if there's something in your past or in your present uh, of which you're ashamed or embarrassed that you do not want to be made public, they want to know about that beforehand so that you can't, so that you don't find yourself in a situation like Mr. Clement is in right now, where he wanted to kind of hide, at least originally, uh, the things he was involved in. I've heard from people involved in these security checks that they're pretty cursory. Do you think that there's a different standard for politicians in terms of a background check to get this kind of security clearance than for someone working as an employee at an intelligence organization? I would be very surprised if, in fact, it was not uh, quite a difference. As I said, when you work for CSIS or CSC or the RCMP, you're dealing with very sensitive information and you're often involved in the actual collection of that information be it from a human source or a signals intelligence source, et cetera, which means they have to vet you to the nth degree to make sure that yeah, you're comfortable with dealing with that material and that because you have access to it and the, and the information is so sensitive that you, cannot be find, you will not find yourself in the future in a compromising situation where because of something you've done, you feel pressured to pass on collection methods or uh, other types of programs to which you have access to a, to a foreign power. I don't know exactly what MPs and cabinet ministers 
and cabinet members go through in terms of their security clearance, but I'd be very surprised if it's nearly as detailed as what we went through at CSIS and COSE. Uh, I guess the question then becomes, in the wake of what happened just yesterday and today, uh, should that change as far as Parliament is concerned? And I'm sure there, there are other people asking themselves that very same question today. A long time ago, I got asked to apply for a job at a national security agency, and I had to go through a security clearance background check. And they went back and they found people that I had gone to kindergarten with. They were very, very thorough. And yet in this case with Tony Clement and his Instagram and his behavior on social media, how could the vetting process miss something that seemed to be so apparent to a lot of people in Ottawa? It probably wasn't asked. Like you said, I, I'm with you. When I got my very first security clearance way, way back in 1982 and 83, uh, they did go back 20 years then. It tends to be more than 10 years now for, for a clearance, at least at the secret level. So at that time, I, was two, I would have been two years old when my clearance started. So yes, it was rather intrusive. It was rather over a long period of time. Uh, and they do ask those questions, but it seems to me that either uh, that que those questions are not asked of MPs who are given uh, clearances to, see, to have access to this material as part of the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, or, and I don't know this to be true, I'll, I'll simply put it out there for, you know, for, on, on a speculative sort of basis, uh, was the question asked and it was answered incorrectly, or rather, was there any kind of attempt by Mr. Clement to hide uh, this behavior, which I understand has been going on for a little while, certainly possibly to predate his assignment to the committee. So I, I don't think we really have a, a timeline down pat on this one, but there is the possibility that before, or rather when he was named to the committee, which was in November of 2017, that this behavior was already sort of well established with Mr. Clement. So again, I, I, I have to assume that in fact, parliamentarians are not asked the same types of questions that CSIS and CSE employees are asked when they undergo their security clearance process. Does that create a potential security vulnerability though? Because these parliamentarians have access to some very sensitive information in some cases, and yet they are not being held to the same standard if they're not even looking at their social media or an Ontario Provincial Police report that somehow didn't make it up the chain. Uh, yes and no. Uh, I, I think potentially there is a possibility of a breach of sensitive material, but without knowing the particulars of what this National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians does, I know it's an oversight committee for CSIS and CSE and CBSA and other intelligence agencies within Canada, it's not clear to me they would have access to the most sensitive information, i.e. sources and methods. So when you work in security intelligence, the two most important things you have to protect are your sources and your methods, i.e. who's telling you the information and how are you getting it? I'd be very surprised if the parliamentarians uh, on this committee would, would even ask those questions about where did CSIS get this or how did CSE collect that or, or even had access to it. I think this is a, a high level committee that looks at more general issues. So I don't think in fact that they are in a position to know things that they could get blackmail for that, that might undermine or, or imperil Canada's ability to collect intelligence. Again, I can't be 100% sure, but uh, you know, further to your, I guess, your primary question, uh, is, it, is it a serious breach? Potentially, although again, as of today, November the 8th, there's no indication that the, black ma the blackmailer uh, either A, had any idea Mr. Clement was on this committee or was blackmailing him with the attempt or with the intent rather of trying to get access to sensitive Canadian intelligence. 
Mr. Clement said there were foreign actors involved. Does that raise a red flag for you? Potentially. Uh, foreign actors, I understand that the ransom, or rather the blackmail demand was in euros, which I find interesting. So it does indicate potentially a European actor. Doesn't mean it couldn't be a North American actor or a Russian actor or a Chinese actor or an actor from Lower Slobovia for that matter. Uh, but it, the fact that it's foreign, I think it, it raises additional questions. And I think that what I'd like to know is, um, do we know in fact the nationality of those actors? I think we, you know, we're living in an age now where there are many allegations and well beyond allegations evidence that russians have engaged uh, in helping mr trump perhaps win the 2016 election they certainly are engaged in misinformation and and false information campaigns uh, during election campaigns uh it is worried about the chinese doing the same thing so i think we have to learn more about the, the particular nationality of the foreign blackmailer but i think it, it certainly raises a red flag and i think we need more information to try to determine just how deep and how serious was this breach in, in fact. Do you think that MPs take these threats seriously, that they could be targets for foreign actors like Russia? That's a really good question. So it's really hard for me to answer given that I'm not an MP. Uh, again, I can only go back to my own experience and that we certainly took, it, took our responsibilities and the possibility of a breach of security very seriously. Uh, you're, you know, if you were approached by somebody that you did not know, uh, who seem to be asking some sensitive questions, it's ingrained in you from day one. You report that immediately to your security officer to say, I, you know, here's what happened, and, and they deal with it. They'll look into it. Is it innocent? Is it not innocent, et cetera? So I can't speak to whether MPs take it seriously or not, but I think that the bottom line here is that if you don't actually work in security intelligence on a daily basis, as I did for more than three decades, I don't think you have the appreciation for what this information is all about and why you have to be careful in protecting it. And if you're only seeing it, you know, piecemeal or once in a while as part of your job, you don't have that understanding. And, and therefore, it's not ingrained. It's not, it doesn't become part of your DNA as when you work at CSE or CSIS. I mean, I, you know, I've retired. I've been retired for three years now, and I still have the same restrictions on what I can and cannot disclose to people such as yourself. And I, I talk in generalities, but I certainly don't talk about the things I did specifically and the, and the sources and methods, as I referred to before, which are kind of like the, you know, the uh, inner sanctum, if you will, of intelligence agencies. So I'd be very surprised if MPs uh, have that appreciation because they just don't deal with this stuff uh, on, on a day-to-day -day basis like people like I did during our careers. So I think the answer to that question is no, they probably don't take it that seriously. Whose responsibility is it to report something like what happened to Mr. Clement? Is it his responsibility to come forward and tell people in Ottawa, I may be in a situation where I may be exposed? Or is it up to the Ontario Provincial Police to say that they've had a member of Parliament come to them and report this to them? How does that process work? Well, first and foremost, it is Mr. Clement's responsibility. If he finds himself in a situation where he's being subject to blackmail or extortion, he absolutely has to tell I'm assuming there's a parliamentary security officer. I, again, I don't know how parliament is organized. I mean, you know, if I go back to my thesis days and if I were in Mr. Clement's shoes, I'd know exactly to whom to report this. There was an internal security office that would, you know, would look into what, you know, what this all meant. So I think the responsibility lies with him. Uh, I don't think it's any other body's responsibility. I don't think it's necessary the OPP to say, oh, by the way, uh, we're working on a file now and it happens to be a, a parliamentarian. Oh, and it happens to be a senior veteran MP. Oh, and by the way, it happens to be one of the members of this 
National Security Intelligence Committee. Uh, no, I think the, the onus lays strictly with Mr. Mr. Clement. He's the one who was first contacted. He's the one who was first uh, told, hey, we have some pretty sensitive information on you. And if you don't pony up 50,000 euros, guess what? It's going to be all over the world uh, as of tomorrow. So I think it is, it is his responsibility. Do you think this jeopardizes the National Security Committee's existence in that oversight? Well, that's another great question. So as you alluded to, uh, this committee was created in, in 2017 and a uh, big brouhaha over this, right? Where the Canada was the only Five Eyes partner. So the Five Eyes being this longstanding intelligence sharing relationship between Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, New Zealand and the United States. We were the only member of the Five Eyes that did not have a parliamentary oversight committee for intelligence. So I guess we kind of felt we were out of the club. So why not create one? Does it jeopardize that? Again, I, I, I think not necessarily because to date we have no information to suggest that there's been a serious breach of security uh, within the committee in the, in the sense of no secret or sensitive intelligence was compromised by Mr. Clement because of his actions. Had this been a very different story whereby he was being asked to provide intelligence to a foreign power uh, through this blackmail attempt, that's a different question. But we don't, we're not faced with that question just yet. Having said that, the committee is still fairly brand new. People will ask questions as to, you know, what the hell is going on in Ottawa and what the hell is going on in Parliament, whereby we have this brand new committee and, and, and we've, you know, lobbied to have it for a long time now. And not even a year or barely a year later, uh, we have this scandal that has erupted on the margins of this committee. So I think people will ask the questions, you know, was it worth setting up in the first place? Do we have to revisit it? I would argue you have to revisit your vetting procedures at a minimum. But again, I don't want to stress is that there's no indication that there's been a compromise of Canadian intelligence or Five Eyes intelligence at this point. Should that change? And we don't have the answer to that just yet. More questions will be asked. And one of those questions will be, do we have to change the way the committee is selected? Do we have to, do we have to change the vetting procedures? Or do we just scrap the whole thing? And I think that third one is probably less likely given the time it's been invested in creating it. But I think these questions will be raised. Thank you, Phil Gursky, for joining us today. No problem. Speaker, ensuring that veterans and their families know about the benefits and programs available to them is essential to my job as Minister of Veterans Affairs. And that's why it's so important to explain what is involved. It's why I've hosted over 40 veteran town halls across the country. It's why we are working so hard to explain Pension for Life as clearly as we can. Welcome back. While well, that was Veterans Affairs Minister Seamus O'Regan talking about what his government has done to restore benefits to veterans. The Liberals promised in their election campaign to increase benefits, restore the pension for life, and treat veterans with respect. Have they? Joining me now are two veterans. In Edmonton, retired Master Corporal Paul Franklin, who lost his legs in Afghanistan, and here with me in studio, retired Captain Sean Bruya, who is also a severely injured veteran. Sean, I'm going to start with you. They made a lot of promises. They weren't going to underspend. They would bring back the pension for life, faster access and better access to benefits for veterans, that they would treat them with great respect. One veteran, one standard. Have they kept their promises? Only one. One was, and I'll give them credit, that they increased the income loss payments for veterans to 90 percent. 
But after that, it was all downhill for veterans. So, for instance, the universal education, any veteran that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised that wanted a post-secondary education would get it, that hasn't happened. One percent of veterans will qualify for this going forward, and it excludes the most disabled and the most destitute veterans. I mean, this is not a Canadian program. This is a highly exclusive and unique program that doesn't meet the promise. Well, Paul, do you feel that Justin Trudeau and his government have kept their promises to veterans? Um, again, just tiny issues that uh, they've done well on. But one of their big promises was a $60 million veterans um, facility for rehabilitation and uh, recovery, and, and including with peer support and stuff. And of course, none of that has ever occurred. And we have a facility like that in Edmonton, the Glenrose, where I went, and uh, it could easily be adopted as a uh, the veterans facility to take care of all wounded and severely injured vets. Now, and Sean, one of, last, nothing. That, one of the big promises, Sean, was that they were going to bring back the pension for life. And the government says, and I've had the minister on the show, we absolutely have done that. You say they have not done that. Have they? Explain to me what the difference is between what the Liberals have brought in and what you think they promised. That's right. Unequivocally, they did not return or reinstate, was the promise, reinstate lifelong pensions. There was only one pension for lifelong uh, uh, benefits for veterans that were severely disabled uh, or for any injury for that matter. And that pension was not reinstated. That pension that continues to be paid out to about 60,000 veterans right now that are, have lifelong disabilities uh, pays approximately three times the amount of this monthly amount that uh, that the Trudeaus are now implementing. Um, the interesting thing is, is that unfortunately after that veteran dies, is that there'll be nothing left over for the surviving family members. This is merely the lump sum which has been the lightning rod for veteran disaffection for the past decade. This is merely the lump sum that's been made into annuity over time. So, Sean, how much less money is the pension that the Liberals are giving veterans compared to the original pension that existed before and that veterans wanted back? Well, that's right. So let's set aside the fact that people under the old disability pension that people are still collecting today uh, get additional amounts for their spouse and their children, which is only right because the family suffers along with the veteran. Um, just the basic watered-down disability pension pays up to three times the amount uh, that this Liberal pension pension is paying. So this one will be three times less. That's correct. Wow. Paul, okay, for people at home who think, what's the big deal with a pension for life? Why are veterans so worked up about this? Why do veterans want that pension for life? Uh, we, we've served, we've, we've gone across the world to uh, do our tours of duty and, of course, uh, protection at home. And the biggest thing is we want the government to step up and uh, take care of us when we're in need. And uh, I think it's only fair. It's a promise that we signed on to when we signed into the military. The problem with the lump sum is that you're giving a huge amount of money to a person who may or may not have um, some sort of uh, drug or alcohol issues or there be family disagreements or there's a whole bunch of other problems within the lump sum. So there, uh, you get that taken away. A friend of mine in 2008, he got a lump sum. He was uh, advised to invest it. And of course, the, the crash happened in 2008, 2009, and he lost all his money. So now he's got zero. So that's the great indicator of why this kind of stuff shouldn't happen. We need to have this pension for life and have this pension kept for um, each of us for each, each year until our end of our lives. And as uh, Sean said, also uh, a bit for our families so that they can be taken care of. We still to this day have uh, widows that have to report that their husbands are still dead 
two, three years after um, the, the deaths and almost on a, a three-year basis, just like I have to report that uh, my limb loss every three years. And it's part of the huge bureaucracy that is Veterans Affairs that they do not understand that this, this stuff is very offensive. Well, and speaking of that bureaucracy, Sean, one of the big promises was to create faster access to programs because the wait time is a huge issue in the financial strain. How are they doing on that file? Abysmal. I, I mean, they have promised that they've been hiring frontline workers. We haven't seen any substantial uh, results of that hiring. There has been no decrease in wait times. In fact, there's been an increase in wait times. Uh, and instead, the government deciding how we're going to deal with these wait times, well, let's set the standard and, and set the bar lower by making veterans uh, wait longer and say, look, we're meeting a longer service standard. I, I mean, veterans are becoming incredibly disillusioned uh, and disaffected and being harmed by the wait for these programs. Uh, I would say that this is a direct contribution to much of the despondency that contributes to people, um, you know, taking such desperate measures such as substance abuse and, and perhaps even suicide. Uh, Paul, what about how the government treats veterans? They promised respect for veterans. They promised veterans wouldn't have to fight them in court. We all remember the images of Julian Fantino being chased through the halls of Parliament uh, by veterans and by veteran spouses. How's this minister doing? Uh, I've always said the Veterans Affairs file is probably one of the worst ones within government, because um, even if you do your job, it's, it's on the backs of uh, wounded and injured and ill veterans and their families and widows. I mean, just to be doing well is, is, is a difficult job. But the problem, though, is, of course, that they aren't doing a great job. And so when they talked about pensions for life, one of the things they did was they simply just changed the name of existing pensions, raised it a, a small amount, and then said, hey, ta-da, we've got pensions for life. And of course, that was the main argument that we wanted, is pensions for life. And so they just changed the name, and, and now they say, look, we've done it. And that's the, the sort of the shell game that's happening. And that's the biggest problem, is that we're watching this, and, and people are dying. So right now, I think it's 71 veterans have committed suicide uh, from the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. So here we are sitting here waiting to get till that number reaches the 159 of the soldiers that have died in Afghanistan. And, and it's going to happen within this next, you know, probably five to 10 years. And we need to get Veterans Affairs to understand that this is preventable and it's up to them to do their job. Okay. That's all the time that we have for today, but I'd like to thank you both so much for your time and as well for your service. Thank you for joining us. Canada played a vital role in World War I, but you may not know the story of the courageous Canadian troops who became the secret weapon of the Allies. On this, the 100-year anniversary of the end of the Great War, here's a look back at the vital 100 Days campaign where the Canadians helped win the war. November 11, 1918, was the last of Canada's 100 days, a series of key battles that ended in German surrender. But winning the war came with tremendous sacrifice, from the first shot fired to the final seconds of the war. The 100 days was an incredibly bloody, difficult period. Fighting in France and Belgium had descended into trench warfare. A maze stretched from the North Sea to the Swiss border, with the Allied and German armies facing one another across a harsh and barren no-man's land of barbed wire, shell craters, mud and death. The casualty numbers just went up and up and up. In early 1918, the situation looked dire for the Allies. Germany launched a series of attacks that pushed the Allies back to within 70 kilometers of Paris. 
The difficulty for the Germans was that it was very costly. They lost 800,000 men by June or July, and they were beginning to weaken. In that critical time, the Allies turned to Canada for momentum. The 100 Days campaign, where the Canadians spearheaded attack after an attack and delivered victory. There was always a high level of secrecy in the movements of Canadian soldiers. The Germans knew that where the Canadians were, it was likely that that's where the action was going to take place. In advance of a major offensive, the Allies planned in the French city of Amiens in the summer of 1918, Canadian troops were sent north to Ypres, Belgium, to trick the Germans into thinking the assault would start there. But the Canadians were secretly rushed back to Amiens for the real attack. They really tried to create this illusion of the Corps being deployed somewhere in the north rather than further south. At, uh, at Amiens, and it was very successful. Delivered without the usual intense artillery barrage. To further confuse the Germans, there was no preliminary artillery bombardment, a standard at the time that would warn the enemy of imminent attack. The tactics worked. On August 8th, Canada led a surprise offensive and advanced 20 kilometers in just three days. They had enough equipment, they had enough massed artillery, they had enough tanks, they had enough to be able to, to really stand a chance of actually punching a hole in these defensive lines. A German commander referred to the battle at Amiens as the Black Day. The German army was beginning to bend under the strain of four years of war and was closer to defeat than anyone had predicted. But the Battle of Amiens came with a tremendous cost to the Canadians suffering nearly 12,000 casualties in total. After Amiens, the Canadians kept up the pressure. On September 2nd, they smashed through the Drocourt-Quéant line, which was just in front of the enemy's main defensive line, the Hindenburg line. Curry regarded the battle as one of the finest feats in our history. And once you were able to, to effectively break through the defensive lines that were there, then they started to move further and further back. Fierce fighting continued until the very end. Canadian troops helped capture the town of Cambrai, and by October 11th, they had reached the Canal de la Sense. On November 11th, Canada's 100 days were over, and the Canadian accomplishments were astounding. More than 100,000 Canadians advanced 130 kilometers and captured almost 32,000 prisoners of war and 3,800 German weapons, including machine guns, mortars, and artillery pieces. The Canadians fought an extraordinary series of battles that basically broke the back of the German army in northern France. The final push was not without losses, 45,000 casualties. Whether it was by choice or by circumstance, the actions of those First World War soldiers are still recognized today, the centerpiece of every Remembrance Day ceremony in Ottawa. The War Memorial's bronze statues are called the Great Response of Canada. The warriors are represented by troops of all services passing through a granite arch. Now the memorial represents all soldiers, sailors, and airmen and women who have lost their lives. But the faces depicted here are from the Great War, who we remember especially today on the anniversary of Canada's 100 days that ended the First World War. Thanks for checking out the West Block podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple podcast, Google podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.